Welcome back to Foster Features Podcast. In today's episode, we will discuss child protection reform with Richard Wexler, the executive director of the National Coalition for Child Protection Reform, also known as NCCPR. Richard has been advocating for child welfare and protection reform for over 40 years. He is also a journalist and author of the book, Wounded Innocence, and writer of countless articles that draw attention to issues around the framework, practices, policies, and history of the child protection system. Richard's work is foundational to understanding both the historical and political influences on our current foster care system. During this very policy-oriented conversation, we also talk about the intersectionality of racism, classism, politics, and the profit-generating aspect of foster care. I feel very fortunate to have him with us today. So without further delay, let's meet Richard Wexler. Welcome back to Foster Features Podcast. I am your host, Pauline Goldsmith-Johnson. Today, we welcome Richard Wexler, a longtime and well-known child welfare reform advocate and journalist. Hi, Richard. Thank you for joining me today. Hi. Thanks very much for inviting me. So um, just give me, uh, well, actually, to give my listeners a little bit of background on why I invited you onto the podcast, I recently found your blog while researching for another episode that I'm planning around racism and care and the impact and outcomes of our current child, child welfare policies. And I found your blog and I found your voice and perspective to be incredibly informative. And I consider myself like not an amateur, but certainly not an expert. And then I came across your blog and I thought, oh my gosh, I have so much to learn. And so as I've developed Foster Features, I've you know worked on improving my knowledge of the very complicated layers of the system from its history to its current policies. And I just thought that your body of work was just one of the most extensive and well-researched. So I brought you on today to continue my learning journey and to share that with my listeners. So to start, if you don't mind, would you tell my listeners about your work in the child welfare space, starting with what led you to this work? Sure. What I do now is I'm executive director of a very small child advocacy organization called the National Coalition for Child Protection Reform. Mm. What got me here is a journey that began um, well over 40 years ago, almost 45 years ago now, when I was a journalism student. And I interviewed a college student who had been in nine different foster homes by the time she was nine years old. Wow. And she told me about how she had survived by keeping the rage bottled up inside her. As she put it, unlike my five brothers who've been in every jail in New York State. So I came out of two and a half hours of interviewing her with a couple of conclusions. First, I was really glad I'd chosen journalism as a career. Mm -hmm. And I knew I was going to keep coming back to the story. But as I did keep coming back to the story, I kept finding that the facts on the ground didn't match what the most widely quoted experts were saying. All through the 70s and 80s, you would hear, well, you know, child abuse crosses class lines. And I thought, okay, so how come the only people I see in the system are poor people? Right. When the dichotomy got too much to bear, as I kept looking, I kept finding that there was, in fact, a much wider range of expertise out there than kept getting into news stories. 
And eventually, I wrote a book about all this called Wounded Innocence. That was in 1990. Mm. That was my bridge into advocacy. I was approached by somebody I had actually interviewed who was active on these issues when I was a reporter in Massachusetts. She said, you want to try to form an organization around the principles in your book? That was 1991. A mere eight years later, we got sufficient foundation funding for me to actually run NCCPR as an organization. Mm. And so can you tell us what that stands for? National Coalition for Child Protection Reform. Amazing. Yeah, that was the blog that I found. And I I thought, how did I miss this over all the research that I do for my website, for the podcast? Like, how did I miss this? So I'm really excited um, to have you on today to talk um, about, to get into some of the nitty and gritty because it's, you know, oftentimes I have um, guests here who talk about their personal experience, whether as a foster parent or former um, foster youth. And sometimes, you know, we do have to kind of draw the focus out a little bit and include some of the history and some of the policy pieces, because that's really where we understand what it's going to take to improve outcomes and to improve um, just on even, you know, the the things that guide and drive what puts children in care to begin with. So um, I think that you're an incredible resource um, to have this conversation with. So in following your blog and articles, you draw some very important correlations between racism, child welfare policy, and the current state of foster care. And I think the conclusions you draw about this is um, important because it also creates sort of a timeline that can be directly tied to the increase of foster care placements, as well as the outcomes tied to those statistics. So could you give an overview of that timeline, specifically the policies passed in the 1990s that dramatically influenced the landscape of the foster care system that exists today? Sure. I'm going to go back just a little bit farther very sure. briefly first. I'm going to go all the way back to the uh, 19th century Okay. earlier since people who are far more expert than I on issues of child welfare and race, people like Professor Dorothy Roberts at Penn Law School, a member of my group's board of directors and author of the book Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare, will has drawn the link between slavery and the treatment of slaveholders of black families and black children mm. to the child welfare system today. What I'm going to, I'm not going to try to tell that story that's much better told by people like Professor Roberts. Mm -hmm. But I would note that the modern child welfare system has its roots, not in benevolence, but in bigotry. What we know as foster care today started with a Protestant minister named Charles Loring Brace. He had seen the revolutions in Europe and they terrified him. He was afraid that immigrant families, Catholic immigrant families, and their children would rise up and see their power and start a revolution, or at the very least, not tolerate the poverty and discrimination to which they were subjected. He viewed these families, the parents, as genetically inferior, Mm. and he thought the children, however, could be saved if they could just be taken away and placed in more wholesome Protestant homes in the South and West. Hmm. So he created the orphan train movement. Hundreds of thousands of children were taken. Some of them were orphans. Many of them were not. They were often taken because family poverty was confused with neglect. So those are the very roots of the system. And the organization he founded, the Children's Aid Society, exists to this day. And to this day, they whitewash the history 
of the orphan trade. Mm -hmm. So the whole system is rooted that way and has been all throughout history. In terms of what has happened more recently, you can follow the trajectory of child welfare by financial incentives. Um, during the Great Depression, the number of children taken away in foster care actually went down. Why? Because the first welfare programs were passed, aid to dependent children hmm. in the 1930s. But starting in the early 60s, the law was changed to allow those aid to dependent children benefits to follow a child into foster care. So the foster care population soared. In 1980, Congress realized that this was getting out of hand and passed a law to try to limit this called the Adoption Assistance and Child Welfare Act. But that law had no teeth. There was no enforcement mechanism and no change in financial incentives. So after dropping briefly, it started to increase again. Hmm. And then we get to the late 80s and early 90s. And what we see happening there is the entire tide of public opinion goes through an upheaval of, frankly, racial and class bias. So you see the fear that has been stoked against poor families, particularly poor families of color, in several three key bills. What's commonly called the crime bill, with its tougher penalties. The welfare bill, which ended family assistance as an entitlement. And a bill called the so-called Adoption and Safe Families Act. And that bill confused child removal with child safety. It encouraged massive removal of children. And then it said, if the child doesn't go in foster care for 15 of 22 months, doesn't matter why, you just rush to terminate parental rights. Right. So this is basically the system itself, exacerbated by the more recent changes of ASPA, have cut a swath of destruction through poor communities, particularly poor communities of color, right. because just as in the days of the orphan trains, family poverty is routinely confused with neglect. Hmm. And so when you talk about like the stoking of fears, would you say, because it's kind of like a chicken and an egg thing, would you say that it was the stoking of fears that... Um, that created the policies, or do you think that the policies relied on the stoking of fear to come into creation? Uh, it was both. Yeah. In the sense, it was a it was a cycle. So, for example, if I simply say the words child abuse, what comes to mind for most people? Children who have brutally been tortured, right. beaten, murdered. Those cases really exist. Right. And they are every bit as horrible as what we imagine, sometimes even worse. Mm -hmm. They are also a tiny, tiny fraction of what caseworkers in the system see. Mm -hmm. But because we have been conditioned to expect that, and it was done on purpose by advocacy groups who sought to raise awareness by using these horror stories and presenting them as if they were the norm. They even had a phrase for it. They called it health terrorism. And health terrorism was very effective. After 50 years of that, when you hear the words child abuse, that's what you think of. Mm. What you don't think of is a family whose food stamps ran out by the end of the month, so the child is hungry. Or they can't afford a decent place to live, so the housing is unsafe. Or um, a single mother has a choice between losing her job by not going to work or leaving the child home alone because they don't can't afford child care. Right. Those cases are the norm. And then there are plenty of cases in between. 
But those cases are the kinds of things workers see every day. And this massive confusion of poverty with neglect, compounded by the racial bias built into the system, has created this system that traumatized children in every way. Mm. There's the trauma of needless removal. There's the trauma of needless investigation and surveillance. There's the high rate of abuse in foster care itself, mm -hmm. but also this. All that time wasted on investigating these cases and needlessly taking away children is stolen from finding those relatively few children in the horror story cases. Yeah. And that's almost always the real reason for those cases. So this is a system that makes all children less safe. Yeah, I agree with you. When I was reading through um, some of the policy initiatives that you spoke of earlier in the particularly in the 80s and 90s that was when I was in care and we talked a little bit about this um, during our pre-interview phone call where it was interesting for me to learn that my sister and I were we were caught up in that sweep of the child sexual abuse um, initiatives where and especially it was targeting poor neighborhoods it was targeting um minority communities. And I lived in, in urban Boston in an interracial family. And I remember being targeted and I was just a little kid, but I remember police officers knocking on our door for no reason. Like nothing was going on. There wasn't any noise. There wasn't a party going on. There was, no one was, was harmed. It was very interesting. And I, and I remembered that. And I remember thinking, why do the police officers keep coming here? And social workers would show up and they would ask, they would separate us and ask us strange questions. I remember thinking, what the hell is going on here? So it was, it was a really interesting, I think, perspective for me to gain you know, all these years later, you know, 30 plus years later to look back and say, that's why, because all these years I didn't really have answers, right? You don't want to think that everyone involved was a terrible person, you know, but what drove this, what validated these decisions. And so getting this history is so important because it does paint a picture of all the missing pieces that you don't realize when you're in it. And even when you're out of it, you're still just trying to survive and then to thrive. And so to get that information and to pull this, all these missing pieces to see a full picture is really has been astounding for me. Well, it's, it's ironic in that if the system were filled with terrible people, it would actually be easier to fix because then all you'd have to do is get rid of the terrible right. people and replace them with good people. Yeah. But the system is largely filled with good people who think they are doing the right yeah. thing and do not understand how much harm they are doing. And that makes it that much harder to get them to change. So you have all sorts of panics that occurred. You mentioned in the early 1980s, the panic over so-called mass molestation cases, right. the McMartin preschool being the most notorious. And it was so absurd. Cases, the allegations were so strange about satanic cults in the basement of daycare centers. Right, so I remember that. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, think now of things like Pizzagate and how everybody right. understood how crazy that was. Well, Pizzagate wasn't that much crazier than the McMartin preschool and similar things, and the whole child welfare establishment bought into it, propagated it, and a large chunk of mainstream media actually believed it. Yeah. Then came, even worse, the, uh, the whole scare about so-called crack babies. When crack cocaine hit, 
there were all these stories about how um, any parent who uses crack, and of course that was the form of cocaine that was widely used, in, more widely used in black communities, was hopeless. A hopeless addict, Their and their children were doomed simply mm. by virtue of that fact that they might have had cocaine in their systems. Well, here's what we found out later. When a study was done of children born with cocaine in their systems, one group placed in foster care, another group left with mothers able to care for them, the actual physical development of the children left in their own homes was better. Mm. For the foster children, the separation from the mothers was more toxic than the cocaine. Yeah. But the hysteria over so-called crack babies led to a huge increase in foster care and helped contribute to the draconian laws we've talked about. Right. Well, and it's just amazing the power you know, that something like this, like one bad planted seed, how it can just misguide an entire group of people in power and just become this super pervasive thing where it's not just policymakers, but it's administrators and caseworkers and police officers, everyone just in this movement of just being entirely and completely blind and misguided. It's just, it's terrifying. Well, again, think of how many people and how easily people got caught up. Not everybody, of course. Not right. many people in something like, say, a pizza gate. But precisely because we viscerally react so strongly to the thought of a child being hurt, and that is a very good thing that we react that way, it is very difficult to cope when we hear that with the idea that what we have tried to do to find those very few cases has actually made all children less safe. Right. Well, and in putting them in unsafe homes that are supposedly, you know, supposed to be safer, you know, and then yeah. not really digging when okay. it's unearthed. I mean, I don't think anyone is unaware of the the abuse that happens in foster homes, that this does happen. It's not an impossible thing. It's not even an uncommon thing. So it's shocking to me that we continue removing children from their homes and putting them in unsafe foster homes, that that's not appalling enough to change that. That's what's interesting Actually, to me. I don't think people are sufficiently aware of that. It's not that people don't know that occasionally it happens, but there's a double standard in our perceptions. We react to those as aberrations and right. fairness. The most extreme cases of foster parents torturing and killing children are indeed aberrations, just mm -hmm. as with birth parents. But the overall rate of abuse in foster care is much higher than people realize, partly because agencies mislead the public about this. Right. What they will do is they will say something like, why, no, no, we've investigated and we find that there is abuse in you know, fewer than 1% of foster homes last year. Well, if you stop and think about it on its face, nobody would really believe that. That means if you gathered 100 former foster youth in a room and said during the last year you were in care, how many of you were abused, only one would raise her right. hands. Um, but they put that number out there, but that number, they don't make it up. It's just that it's agencies investigating themselves. Right. So they have an enormous incentive to see no evil, hear no evil, speak exactly. no, evil, no evil in the case file. Right. When you look at independent studies, when you ask foster youth after the fact what happened to you, you find that somewhere between at least one quarter and one third were abused in foster care. Mm -hmm. And the number is probably higher due to how these studies are conducted. 
But even when that doesn't happen, of course, there's the inherent emotional trauma of needless removal. We have learned a bit about that. It has been brought home to us by what happened at the Mexican border. Now, there's a crucial difference. When, and we've talked about it, when child protective agencies in this country do that kind of thing, generally the people mean well. The problem is for the child who's been needlessly removed, that doesn't matter. Those children cry the same sort of tears for the same sorts of reasons as those who were taken at the Mexican border. So on top of the abuse in some foster homes, and even though the majority of foster homes are not abusive, you have the inherent trauma of needless removal. And even when there isn't removal, the investigation is traumatic. And we have reached the point where one-third of all American children and more than half of black children will have to endure the trauma of an investigation before they turn 18, and almost always it will be for no reason. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's really astounding. I haven't met a single person who was in foster care who did not report some level of abuse in foster care. And I think it's often, like as you're pointing out, it is it is often ignored that just the removal is traumatic you know just even if you're even if you're in foster care for 2 weeks what you endured on that and on that day and in those moments where you were torn away from your mother your father your grandmother whomever your caretaker was and from your home from your siblings from your teachers your community from your street from your house you know how traumatic that is to the child developing brain. I think they now have a term for it called um, developmental trauma. And that has long lasting consequences. So, I mean, as someone who endured it myself, you know, it's something that, you know, at 41, I'm still contending with. So it doesn't ever go away. And I just think the mere fact that that is not part of the equation or part of the analysis evaluation is just so disturbing to me. And that's something that I would like to see immediately change. And I know that that's going to require, you know, an uprooting of so many other things, but I feel like just the the lack of acknowledgement of that is so harmful to children. And that is something that former foster youth that I've connected with, and we've kind of built this little this little community that we are now of grownups who experience the system that we we get together and we talk about those types of things, like how we were we were not allowed to show our sadness, our depression, our anxiety, our terror. You know, we weren't allowed to show that, and we were just told, you know, you're fine, you're fine, and we were not fine, and we will we were never going to be fine, and no children. Uh, no child enduring that is going to be fine. And so I think the the um, the willingness and the push to ignore it is just is just as harmful as anything else that you endure when you're in that system. And what, what to me compounds the frustration is that some of the people who ignore this proclaim themselves to be experts in trauma. Right. They talk about trauma all the time. Right. They declare themselves trauma-informed, mm -hmm. but they only mean the trauma, and it is a real and a serious trauma that can be inflicted by genuinely abusive birth parents. That is true. Mm -hmm. That is a trauma. But you can't fight trauma with trauma. Right. And the, the, the refusal to acknowledge the trauma of separation 
diffuse the entire discussion of how to deal with trauma. Um, one of the worst places that this occurs, for example, is let's say that there is domestic violence in a household. And let us say um, the father is beating up the mother. Child Protective Services comes in and says, oh, you were a bad mother because you allowed your child to witness domestic violence. And they will sometimes take away the child. Now for a child, if a child is young enough, she or he is going to process that as, this terrible thing has happened to my mother and it must be my fault because mm. I'm being punished by being taken away. Yeah. And yet we inflict that children on child, on, on the, that, that trauma on children over and over. In one state, New York, it's been recognized as so traumatic it's illegal to take children for that reason, although it still happens. Right. But in most states, one expert said, doing that to a child is tantamount to pouring salt into an open wound. In most states, child welfare policy in these cases boils down to please pass the salt. Mm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, when I hear anyone claim to be trauma-informed, I immediately question <laughs> because I know how e how easy it is just to like have lip service around that particular element. And um, and I in my clinical internship, my final year of graduate school, I worked for a third party. Um, nonprofit organization that went into community schools to provide trauma-informed intervention. And every single time I met with my supervisor, I continued to ask her, so when are we doing the trauma-informed intervention training? And she just laughed at me. <laughs> and she said, good question. <laughs> and I thought, what? What do you, what? Is this a, is this a joke? And I, I literally worked there eight months and never, never really got any sort of formal training or even understanding of what it means to be trauma-informed, what are examples of trauma, and how does it inform our approaches and our interventions and our treatments. And I just thought that that, and this is a, you know, I won't obviously give the name out, but it, this is a really well-known, well-funded nonprofit, and they have shiny brochures and vanity metrics and all these things. And um, I know because I was on the ground doing their so-called trauma-informed intervention, I can tell you, I did no such thing. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, very easy to use these terms that um, are just more readily available to people now because of social media, because it's more you know, talked about in the news, because we have mental health awareness now and things like that. But there really isn't any sort of um, meaningful definition, meaningful strategy, meaningful practices that are widely known or used. So I found that to be, uh, that was an education for me for sure about like, oh, this is what it's like to be in the field. And I'm not, I'm not in the classroom anymore. And this isn't, you know, just a discussion among my peers and my professors. This is what it looks like in the real world. And I was really disappointed and, and discouraged by that a great deal. So I want to um, I want to expand on something. So you you pointed out that racism is a foundational force in this space. And I have to admit that when I read your blog, um, your style of writing can be a bit comical in how you express your findings. Um, you know, when you contradict claims such as like, we solved racism and child welfare. And I liked your style because you are calling attention to things that are really so silly and preposterous. And so 
especially when you see those headlines, you're like, what? Since when? Like, have you have you not been tuning in every day since till today? Um, so and and in one of your articles, you coined a term called the caucus of denial. So what do you yeah. mean by that? First thing I say, by the way, when I say something like, you know, well, celebrate now racism. Yeah, that was it. You're like, crack the champagne. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that was really disturbing when I saw that. Yeah, I, I definitely, I I absolutely agree with that. I've absolutely seen examples of that happen. So yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's just such a, it's such a thing that we talk about now more regularly. I mean, even in my office job, we talk about it. We have initiatives around it. We have learning pathways. We have all these things, but for some reason, you know, with, in, in journalism specifically, you know, you have all these contradictions and I think it's hard for people to feel that they have a real grasp on like what's real, what isn't real, what what requires our immediate attention and what doesn't. And um, something that stuck out to me lately, I mean, the, the last year, um, and even in developing my podcast during a pandemic, uh, so bringing us, you know, from where we started, you know, 100 plus years ago to you know, through the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and all these policy initiatives, um, 
where we are right now in a global pandemic, I found some of your reporting on this to be really interesting because you challenged the perception of there being an increase in child abuse and a significant reduction in abuse reporting due to the lack of accessibility to children during like remote learning and periods of quarantine. And it was interesting because I'd heard that too, and I bought into it. And then I saw your report and I thought, oh shit, <laughs> I, I was like the rest of them. What happened to like me thinking independently, doing my research, you know, having an opinion of my own. And I thought, oh my gosh, like this is, this is really, really important. So because it, they make it make sense, right? It's like, of, of course, you know, oftentimes abuse cases are um, discovered in schools because these teachers spend, you know, eight plus hours a day with this population. They know their kiddos, you know, so it seems likely that if there were to be a report on this, it would likely come from either a teacher or a coach or, you know, some other grown up outside of the household that spends a great deal of time with that child. So during the pandemic, all of those outlets were just terminated. So, you know, what, do, so how do we know if children are safe or not safe? And also with the repercussions of the pandemic, people losing their jobs, losing their homes, um, does that, you know, obviously we know to some level that influences um, the stability of a household, you know, of course, how couldn't it, you know, it doesn't mean that a person who never abused their child suddenly starts abusing their child, but where there was already some difficulty in the home, not as serious, not serious enough to remove a child, but maybe now things have escalated due to the, um, the, the repercussions of the global pandemic and the financial crisis that we're all facing. Um, what, what was, what was, how did you come to this understanding that this is not the case? Like you debunked this myth that I bought into instantly. So tell me how you got there. Okay. Well, the, the fact that people bought into the myth is an example of the success of something we talked about before. Right. Ter terrorism. If people have been led to believe um, for their entire lives, that when you hear the words child abuse, um, it means beatings and torture, and that it is incredibly widespread, that there is an enormous vast amount of it because the horror stories are linked to hugely inflated numbers that involve all allegations of anything. So of course you will then think, oh my God, the mandated reporters aren't watching. So this army of child abusers is able to come out from under their beds and torture My. children. Mm -hmm. If you understand that what we think of when we say child abuse is extremely rare, and the serious cases are likely to be hard to hide, then you can understand that if the system pulls back, if the surveillance state is forced to cut back, that is not going to increase child abuse. Now, of course, the pandemic has put more stress on just about everyone, but it doesn't follow that the only way people will cope with stress is to lash out against their children. Mm. And what adds the element of this is we know who gets reported. We know who these, this army of mandated reporters is reporting on. Poor families, especially poor families of color. So the myth that has been propounded is really saying, without people even noticing the racial bias at its core, that the minute white, almost overwhelmingly white middle class 
overwhelmingly poor, disproportionately non-white kids, those kids' parents will unleash upon them a pandemic of child abuse. And that is a phrase that was actually used. Mm. But because of the myths of health terrorism and the underlying racial bias, one news organization after another bought into it. There were some notable exceptions. The Marshall Project questioned it, Associated Press did, and one of my favorites is a story from Bloomberg City Lab, where they found that in poor communities, the requirement that the Child Protective Services Agency step back wasn't unleashing an epidemic of child abuse. Rather, it was like, and this was the term used in the story, the pollution lifting. Mm. Um, analogous to what we saw in the earliest days of the pandemic, when people weren't going anyplace, nobody was driving, the pollution lifted. Same thing with this lack of constant surveillance. Um, my favorite line from that story is from an advocate who quotes a parent who says, one of the routine awful things that agencies do is they strip search children looking oh. for bruises. And, or when they come and make their unannounced inspections on families that are under surveillance. This parent said, at least now, they're not making me strip search the kids during these virtual visits because that would be child pornography. Right. Uh, so, and then we found research that's confirming the fact that children were not in any increase in danger. That doesn't mean that there were no cases anywhere that might have been caught otherwise. It just means that there were very, very few and that other cases may very well have been found by workers who had lower caseloads and more time to find them. So then we had this study done in New York City called an unintended abolition. And what this researcher found is as the Child Protection Protective Services Agency, or as these agencies should be called family regulation agencies, mm -hmm. as it was forced to step back Mutual aid organizations stepped up, community-based groups that would offer everything from free diapers to free therapy, whatever a family needed. And it was being offered by people who are not mandatory reporters. Mm. So there, when these groups stepped up and the formal system stepped back, child safety improved. So it creates a sense, a roadmap of where we should go, which is to move the service provision out of the hands of an agency that can take away your children into the hands of community-based groups. We need to abolish mandatory reporting, which has backfired. It was put in place with no study, no evidence that it would work, and now we know it discourages families from seeking help and overloads the system. We get rid of that and we wind up making children safer. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm a mandatory reporter, and I had one experience with a friend who was telling me a story about another friend who was a parent, and I had the sort of the sensation, um, you know, that she was going to tell me something that, like, I would fe be obligated under law to report. So I said to her, I said, whoa, hold on. Before you say anything else, I'm a mandatory reporter. So if you're going to tell, you know, just be mindful of what you're going to tell me because I want to help because she was yeah. calling me for help. And, and I said, just don't use terms like this or like this or like this, because I knew yeah. that because I knew who she was talking about. I knew that the child was not in danger, but I never want to put myself professionally in a position where I'm penalized 
because I didn't follow a protocol, right? So I had to sort of create and like you know, have all of this like backdoor stuff that I'm doing and going around the edges, you know, so that I'm not breaking the law, but I'm like just, you know, right on the fringe there because I wanted to be helpful, but I didn't want to be put in a position where I have to compromise potentially the integrity of my my profession. So it was, yeah, I, I agree with you about mandatory reporting. I think there's other solutions. And I think, like you said, the mutual aid, I think, you know, I live in New York City and I have seen such an uptick in organizations. I belong to one. I live in North Brooklyn and I, I, I participate in an organization called North Brooklyn Mutual Aid. And it's just people, you know, it's, there's, there's no like office or headquarters or campaigning or, you know, it's all through social media and they have a Slack channel. And so you learn about various, excuse me, volunteering opportunities and ways that you can help, whether it's, you know, bringing clothes or groceries, (coughs) excuse me, losing my voice, um, or, or just delivering meals um, so it, it was really amazing to see a community of like-minded individuals who said, we have some time, we have some resources, we can share this for people who are right on the edge of having nothing or have already gone over the edge. What can we do to ease that a little bit and to get them where they need to be so that they're safe and, and they're healthy until until a policy comes in or a paycheck comes in from the government or like whatever it is that comes next that can get them to a much better place. So, I mean, it absolutely works. I mean, I've really seen it during the pandemic with my own eyes and participated myself and seen what a difference it makes when you don't have bureaucrats and administrators at the helm. You just have people who live in this community so they know their neighbors and that makes such a big difference in how how any of these issues are approached and how the integrity and respect is preserved during those interactions. So it's really been an awesome, an awesome experience. And like you said, like the pollution getting lifted, I, I totally agree with that statement and that analogy because it's, it's so true. It's so fitting to, to what I've observed over the last year. So one So now you have to be hesitant about accepting food. Yeah. So all of the 
effects occur as a result of this giant child welfare surveillance state. Mm. Well, because it's really removing the human side of this situ of these types of situations. And I think, you know, you said it when you a, a little a few sentences ago about that those who are the surveyors and those who are the surveyed. And I think that when you when you really see the race and the classism playing out there where it's it's middle class white professionals and poor, disproportionately black and brown families. And you're like, how do you not make that connection? Like, how do you, you know, but I think because we haven't, you know, we've just started having this conversation in this country. And I think it's going to take some time for us to, to break down how we are benefiting and how we are participating in the, in these types of behaviors and practices. And I think that's going to be hard for a lot of people, especially those in the child welfare space, because as we've noted before, they consider themselves the do-gooders. So when it's turned on its head and they recognize if they will allow themselves to, that they have played a role in creating some incredibly dangerous, traumatic situations that you cannot take back, you know, that these children will carry these wounds for their whole lives how they are going to change if they decide to, or will they just ignore it and cover it up with, you know, all the normalizing that that particular industry is so well known for um, normalizing these types of practices and perpetuating them. So um, it'll be interesting to see how some of the things that are kind of coming down the pipeline in the foster care space, such as some class action lawsuits across the country, around um, kind of ignoring child abuse, but then there's also the practice of those third-party uh, companies contracted by the government to seize benefits on behalf of children whose parent is either deceased or been a service member. And so it'll be interesting to see how the outcomes of those class action lawsuits inform policy going forward and also inform advocates, inform the administrators, the agencies, and those practices. I'm really hoping to see some movement there, but you know, I'm not naive. But my hope is that this is a, a move in the right direction. Well, the record on class action lawsuits is mixed. The problem is a lot of them have been brought by groups whose goal is simply to quote fix foster care unquote. Mm. In other words, so the conditions in the homes are a little better. Um, as a, but the only way to fix foster care is to have less of it. Because what those losses tend to do is lead to settlements that add another layer of bureaucracy. Mm. In some cases, they may impede things like kinship foster care, which is the least harmful form of foster care. They may divert resources from prevention programs into hiring more caseworkers and recruit, and, and, or failed recruiting campaigns for more foster parents. There have been notable exceptions. In uh, the state of Alabama, there was a class action lawsuit built around rebuilding the system to emphasize keeping families together. It had considerable success. Um, now, as always happens, there's always backsliding. They've literally just been sued again, like 30 years later, um, because of problems with the kids they still do take away. Mm. But they are still better than most states, and it's the last state most people would, would expect. But because that suit, brought by the Baslon Center for Mental Health Law, and their legal director is a member of my group's board, that suit emphasized keeping families together, 
Mm-hmm. That's one of these particular dark, ugly corners of the system mm-hmm. that was recently exposed brilliantly by NPR and the Marshall Project. Mm-hmm. And there, there are some, as you know, some foster youth who are entitled to Social Security disability or Social Security survivor benefits. And this sounds so Dickensian, it's hard to believe, but child welfare agencies, although it is legal, it is really a form of stealing. Right. They will rush in and claim the money for themselves to run their systems. I mean, it's literally worse than stealing candy from a baby. It really is. They take their money. And unfortunately, there are loopholes in the law that make that legal. One hopes that now, thanks to this expose, that will start to change. And mm-hmm. there are a couple of states which are at least look, beginning to look at changing their practice in this regard. Yeah. Well, and that's my, that's my fear. Mentality. It tells you something about the mentality, though, that the agencies will say, but we're doing so much good for these children. Mm-hmm. Of course we should use their money to fund our wonderful systems. That tells you a lot about the willful blindness that permeates child welfare. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the part that, that I fear is, you know, when you challenge something in a system, a mechanism, such as we see with these, you know, private contracts with the government that are specifically tasked with taking, you know, getting those benefits and and taking them from the child and spending it, not saving it on behalf of the child so that when they age out, they have something to help them develop some sense of security and safety when the government is no longer providing any of those things. Um, my, you know, my, my fear is that it's not going to work because when you have mechanisms where there is, it is profit generating, it's really, really hard to break that down. And that that's so, sort of my frustration in doing this work is, you know, I great, I unearthed it. I'm bringing it to my listeners. I'm blogging about it. I'm tweeting about it. I'm doing all these things. And the Marshall Report, NPR, they're shouting it from the rooftops. But you're talking about very powerful, wealthy forces. And typically, those are not the mechanisms that yeah. readily give themselves up, right? So what the hell? Like, where do we go from here? You know, that's so, that's kind of my daily that, frustration. The foster care industrial complex. Right. And there are areas where it's even worse than just the stealing of the Social Security money. And what I mean by that is there are a whole series of perverse financial incentives involved in foster care. It is not true, as some on the far right say, that governments make money on foster care. Governments don't. Um, however, the incentives are still often perverse because it can cost the state less because of federal aid to use foster care than to use better alternatives, which are in fact cheaper in total dollars. Who does make money on foster care? Private agencies. Right. Not just in, not just consultants who you know find out how to grab the social security money, but many of a large chunk of the institutions, residential treatment centers. Um, which are really just rebranded orphanages, mm-hmm. group homes, and in many states, the agencies that oversee family foster homes are privately run, and typically, not always, they are paid for every day they keep a child in their institution or in their foster home. Now, that doesn't mean that they hold meetings in the basement and you know act like Montgomery Burns on The Simpsons and gloat about them that how many more kids are coming through the door. It's more subtle than that. Mm. Rationalization is powerful. It is. They persuade themselves that all 
these children really needed to be taken away, and they all have to stay with us for a long, long time. Now, one of the ways we know this isn't true is that the state of Illinois, about 25 years ago, started changing the financial incentives. And in less than 10 years after they did that, the number of children trapped in Illinois on any given day fell from 51,000 to 17,000. Wow. So, lo and behold, the intractable became tractable, the dysfunctional became functional. Right. <laughs> and it was all done under the watchful eye of independent uh, court monitors who found no compromise of, of child safety by doing it. Right. So, this is how we know that the financial incentives for private agencies play a huge and really bad role in all this. Absolutely. Yep. I mean, when I've looked into fostering to adopt or just fostering in different states, um, there are some states that only, only offer privatized services. So it's really disheartening. You know, I mean, I, I actually was considering um, last year before the pandemic hit um, fostering to adopt. And I was going to move to Philly because I have some family there. So I'd have already a built-in support system. And then when I did my research and I called the Department of Children and Families and I asked, you know, what is the process? Is there a residency requirement? Like, what does this process look like for someone like me? And they said, oh, well, we will give you a list of agencies. Um, and then I said, are they private agencies? Do you have any public agencies? And they said, oh, no, it's all private contracts. And I said, well, then I guess I won't be moving to Philly. And I guess I won't be fostering to adopt in the state of Pennsylvania. So, I mean, ultimately, I've decided to stay in New York um, yeah. and pursue that path here in New York. But um, I was really, I was, that was part of my kind of awakening and, oh my gosh, like I need to, I need to learn more about this. And so I read Daniel Hatcher's book, um, The Poverty Industry, that was super yep. enlightening. I mean, disheartening, but enlightening. And to just to learn about these, you know, the profit generating mechanisms of the system have to be done away with, or we're never going to have yeah. an effective use of foster care. And we're never going to build better solutions for prevention. And yeah. that is basically like my hard line with all of this. It's like, we, there's so much junk here. There's just so much junk, so much red tape. It's so unnecessary. It's so harmful to communities, to families, to children. Why are we doing this? I mean, how much money are we really making that it's worth? I mean, I get that it's like individuals that make up a system and when they're all convinced, you know, that they're all doing the right thing. But at some point, we just have to rip off the bandaid and go, this is just wrong. It's just fundamentally, fundamentally, ethically, morally wrong. And we just need to make some good choices here. I mean, I don't know when we reach that point. I don't know what terrible case has to come down the pipeline for this to blow open and we see everyone scrambling to do the right thing. Maybe that time never happens. I'm not sure. Maybe I'll have this podcast till I'm 80 years old doing this work. I don't know. <laughs> it will happen and then there will be a backlash and then it will have to happen again. Mm. I mean, one of the lessons that uh, getting real old has taught me is you always have to refight the battle. Yeah. So right now, we need to basically seize as much ground as we can. There is a shift. This is the time to begin to make changes. Um, a year ago, no one could have imagined that we could at least be talking about repealing the Adoption and Safe Families Act. And if we don't get that, at least getting some curbs on its worst provisions. That would 
Yeah. So there is a great deal of progress we can make, and then we hold as much ground as possible when the backlash comes. And there will be one, because once the changes are made, they will be scapegoated for every horror story. The fact that there are horror stories right now without making those changes, the fact that there have always been such stories won't matter. They will be scapegoated. That's how we got ASFA in the first place, Mm. by exploiting those kinds of horror stories. But what we need to do now is fight as hard as we can to make as much, to gain as much ground as we can and help prevent as many children as possible from being needlessly entrapped in this system. Right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's, um, like I said, it's inspiring and then disheartening all at the same time, (laughs) but we do it because, you know, we know, we know that it's wrong and we know that it's harmful. It's dangerous. It's toxic and it's completely avoidable. It's completely preventable. And, you know, I, I never expected to find myself on this path doing this work, but it is the best thing I think I've ever done with my life. You know, so I'll keep doing it as long as I'm allowed to. And um, thank you so much for for joining me today. This has been, I think, the most information in one episode I have ever provided <laughs> to my listeners and ever taken in myself. So thank you so much for your time. And I hope to have you on again in the future so that we can talk through. I know there's so much more that we didn't learn today that is really necessary to help us form you know, a really informed opinion on where we are, why, how we got here and where to go next. So hoping that we'll be able to connect again in the near future on some other items and, and um, com- continue our learning journey. I'm sure we will. Let me just mention three final items in closing. Sure. First, unfortunately, because you have just interviewed the entire staff of NCCPR, <laughs> um, we can't handle individual cases. Mm. Um, we work only on system, systemic reform. For those interested in learning more about our approach to systemic reform and about these issues, our website is nccpr.org, and our blog is at nccprblog.org. Yes, and I'll also be providing the links in the show notes as well, and and also on the fosterfeatures.org website. Terrific. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, thank you. And look forward to hearing from you again soon. Okay. Thank you. A big thank you again to Richard Wexler for his time, insights, and dedication to this work. He has an incredible depth of knowledge and dedicated passion to child protection reform, so I'm incredibly grateful to have crossed paths with him and to bring his work to you today. I encourage you to visit his website at nccpr.org and his blog at nccprblog.org for more information on the policy reform work that Richard is leading. I've also provided the links to NCCPR in the episode notes, as well as some articles published by NPR and the Marshall Project that was discussed during the episode. With that, thank you for listening. Keep being brave with your voices. Take care, everyone.